winter Sunday morning. My name is George Davis. Thanks for being a part of our church this morning. We're going to continue our study now in the Gospel of Mark. This is the part of the service where we take time to explore God's Word and what it means for us. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one close by in a pew rack. We're continuing our, our journey through this gospel, we're following the life and ministry of Jesus, the early part of his ministry, and the northern part of Israel and Galilee, and then we'll ultimately watch him go to Jerusalem. Now, even as we're going through this, some of you, many of you are using our devotional guide, the materials, and so you're kind of walking through this uh, journey of Mark's gospel with us. We're working uh, in a similar way with our students and our kids today. And so even as we're going through this study together, it may be the case that as you're following Jesus's life, you would actually like to see these places that are described in the Bible for yourself. With that in mind, Rose and I are going to be leading a group to Israel uh, next year in April of 2020. And if you would like to be a part of that group or just know more information, uh, I'm going to have a couple of informational meetings coming up, one a week from Tuesday and then Sunday, March 3rd. Both of those will be in the Core Cafe at the other end of the building. They'll be about an hour in length. I'll give you more information about what we're going to see on this trip, uh, more of the details, cost, what's covered, those sorts of things, and then have time for your questions. So if you just like to know more, obviously there's no obligation in coming to this meeting, but those meetings will be coming up starting on February 19th. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Rose and I are looking forward to taking a group from our church to experience the land of Israel. Speaking of Rose... Uh, as we come to Mark 5, I was reminded of a conversation I had now over 25 years ago before Rose and I were married. I had a friend who looked at me and he said this. He said, George, I'm going to give you one piece of marital advice and this is all I will say. And then he gave me three words. And the three words were these. Expect the unexpected. <laughs> That was his premarital advice. Then he looked at me and said, that's all I'm going to say. I think about that conversation 25 years now into this journey of marriage, and I thought, you know, there was a lot of wisdom in those words. 25 years ago, I, I didn't know what Rose and I, we, what we would learn about each other. 25 years ago, I didn't know what I would learn about myself over these years in the, in the journey of marriage, the good, the bad, the ugly. 25 years ago, I didn't know some of the opportunities and challenges that we would face together as a couple and ultimately as a family. 25 years ago, I didn't know the, the different places our journey of marriage would take us. And so we needed to expect the unexpected. I, I remind you of that story. I tell that story to you because in, in, in a similar way, I think it, it introduces us to some of the scenes we're, we're seeing in the middle of Mark's gospel. Because in a real sense, we're going to look at several different scenes in the life of Jesus. In a real sense, people come around Jesus, they engage him, and, and as they experience Jesus, it doesn't turn out the way they expect it. Turns out Jesus is someone that doesn't fit into our expectations. And so in a real sense, when as these people get close to Jesus, this advice rings true for them as well. You've got to... You've got to expect the unexpected. Now, I realize now for us, as we go through the book, for many of us, this is 
it's anticlimactic to say that because some of you, you already know the stories. You know how they turn out. You know what happens, and, and we become so familiar with it. And the unexpected reality of, of being close to Jesus can be lost. For some of us here, maybe uh, the truth is you feel like you've already got Christianity figured out. And maybe you would say, I'm, I'm just not really that open to it. Perhaps in different ways you feel like you've been burned by church, you've been burned or disappointed by people that you know in your family that claim the name of Christ. Others of us, maybe it feels like, we've, you know, I feel like I've got Jesus figured out and I, I kind of understand Christianity. Maybe even, our, you know, our lives almost feel like they're on autopilot. So it's great to come to church, but, the, you know, I, I'm just really focused on how my life is working and it, it's just all coming together. And I think Mark wants us to see, and we, we're going to see this in these stories, when you, when you really take time to look at Jesus... And when you see the experiences the people around him had when they engaged him, you really do realize he, he doesn't fit our expectations. If, if, if you're going to take Jesus seriously, if you're really going to you know, explore Jesus seriously, you, you've, got to, you've got to expect the unexpected. To show you what I mean, let's now come to, to Mark chapter Five, and, and I want to move through four scenes in the life of Jesus as Mark tells a story. The, First two, we're going to move through rather quickly, um, and actually, I'll start with the, the last scene in chapter four, and then as we get into chapter five, we'll slow down a little bit and, and be more focused on the latter two scenes in Mark chapter five. So, Mark chapter four, the last scene in, in, in this chapter, uh, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. They're on the, the Sea of Galilee. It's this large lake in, in northern Israel, a, you know, and a horrific storm comes up, and, and the disciples become scared. I mean, of course, several of them are veteran fishermen. They, they want to deal with this scene well, and, and yet it, it's like it, things are starting to unravel for them a little bit, so they wake up Jesus somewhat panicked, expecting him to help them control the boat, and then he does the unexpected, right? He doesn't help them control the boat, he calms the sea. And in the midst of that scene, we see him really, right, looking, looking at these guys and going, so why were you afraid? Where is your faith? And, and, and as the disciples kind of interact about what's going on, it's like, who is this? that he can do these things. And that ties us into something that Mark is really doing in the early chapters of the book because as, as Mark is telling the story of Jesus, particularly in the early chapters, he wants us to wrestle with who is he? Mark wants you to see Jesus as, as the promised one, as the Christ, the Messiah, the one who comes with authority and power to bring about God's kingdom, the one who is now making this new rescue plan and plan of restoration that God has for us, a reality. And, and so here we see the disciples doing what Mark wants us to do. They're wrestling with, with who is Jesus. And then the boat lands finally right on the other side of the lake, and this brings us to the start of chapter 5. And, 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 and the disciples have argued gone from the kind of the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern or southeastern side. Most likely they're close to a place called Gergesa on this map. They haven't gone that far geographically, but they have gone miles culturally. 
Because in going from the region of Galilee to what is known as the region of the Decapolis, it's a region that, that really begins just east of the Sea of Galilee and goes much farther south. It's the region of the Ten Cities. And for various political realities, which I won't go into, at this time, this region was under direct Roman control. And the Romans maintained a tight grip on this region because it gave them access to very lucrative and important trade routes to the east. And with that direct Roman control, this area, unlike the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, was predominantly Gentile. The northern villages that Jesus often spent time in were predominantly Jewish. These, this part of the lake was predominantly Gentile. It was a totally different cultural environment. And for Jesus' disciples, <laughs> there's a real sense in, in which, you know what, this isn't what we signed up for. This is unexpected. They're now in unfamiliar territory. And for them, this is an early lesson that following Jesus will take you to surprising places. For them, it is an early lesson that the message of Jesus doesn't just apply to people who are like me. It's going to take them a while to let that message sink in. They're in unfamiliar territory. But there's, it's an early lesson that this, this good news of Christ, of what he's doing, is application for everyone, not just the people like us. I mean, for us as a church, this is part of the reason we're in a place like a small village in West Africa, Burkina Faso, a Muslim village, because the, meth, the message of Jesus isn't, it's not just for people like us. After they land, Jesus is approached by a man who is demon-possessed. His life really is one of torment. He lives among the tombs. He's been ostracized by his community. And Jesus exercises the demons. He sends them into a herd of pigs, and the demons drown the pigs in the sea. Now look at this scene just very quickly from two different angles. First of all, look at it from the perspective of the disciples. I mean, for the disciples... Everything about this scene is, is really revolting because all the details of, these, of this scene from a Jewish perspective are details that are ceremonially unclean. A man who is demon-possessed, who lives among the tombs, the pigs, all of it is outside their comfort zone, yet, yet they're seeing that the power of Jesus is a, a power that is now penetrating the darkness, now power going to surprising places. Now turn the tables and look at the scene from the people in that area because we understand, you know, as Mark tells the story, that after this takes place, here's, here's this guy, and he's now sitting in his right mind, right? He's back to his old self again, and, and word gets out, and people from the community come out, but they, they see what has happened, and they, they're terrified by Jesus' power. They're terrified by all that has happened. And the reality is Jesus has just interrupted their status quo. He's, he's disrupted their everyday life. And in, in fear, they ask him to leave. So Jesus gets back in the boat, back to that other side, back to the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is more Jewish in orientation. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 21. Now, as we come to verse 21, again, we're going to see an example of what's sometimes referred to as Mark's sandwich structure. That is, he brings two different stories together and shows us how these stories are connected. And in telling them in this way, he wants us to see certain commonalities between the two. And so we'll see him do that again 
beginning in verse 21. So pick up in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him, which was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, as as you see this scene, understand this guy is a synagogue leader. And the term used here means that he was basically the lay leader of the synagogue. He had been been tasked with the responsibility of oversight for the synagogue by his community, which means he's an individual that is respected and admired, and and he has a, a certain sense of status. And, of course, once again, people are pressing in, the curious, those people amazed at Jesus' power, so a large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And, of course, this is where the second story kicks in. Look at verses 25 and following. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She has a a chronic bleeding disorder. She had suffered a great deal from under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And notice again, both both Jairus and and this woman, if, if I can just touch him. I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing who it, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Interestingly, uh, The language used here in in describing this woman's suffering is is a language that really includes the concept of both physical pain as well as social shame. You you see, she had a a bleeding disorder, which in that context would have made her ceremonially unclean. So there was a shame and isolation that came with the last 12 years of her life. And she she comes up to Jesus, she touches him. And as she walks away, she begins to feel transformation in in her body. And you can just see her pushing out, right, to get away now because she's done it and now she's better and she's now getting away. And then Jesus calls her out, right? He won't let her do that. Have you ever had this, you ever, some of you are in school or if you remember some school experiences, did you ever have that situation where, you know, for some reason you didn't do your homework, something came up or, or you did it but you really didn't understand the concepts and you know you did it but you didn't under, you know, you know you didn't get it right and you go into class the next time your class meets and you're sitting there and all you can think is don't call on me, don't call on me, don't call on me. Do you know that experience, right? And then the teacher calls out your name and, You're exposed. 
Jesus calls her out. And, and, and the text says, you know, she, she comes trembling with fear. But then Jesus says, your faith has healed you. It becomes this powerful moment, right? Just this powerful moment in her life. But, but this powerful moment in her life becomes a catastrophic moment in the life of this synagogue ruler because then we flip back to the first story. Look at how the passage continues, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, uh, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And interestingly, in the first century, it, it was pretty common that in the death of a loved one, you would actually hire professional mourners if you could afford it. So that's probably what's going on here. So these people are weeping and wailing, and he goes in to them. Why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he pulled them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went where the child was. And he told, took her by the hand and said to her, and these are words in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at that they were completely astonished. And he gave them orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So we see all these, right, we see all these different scenes and the people around Jesus are interacting with him, but things never go as they expect. I mean, they, they engage Jesus and experience his authority and power. They have to expect the unexpected. So what, what is Mark really wanting us to see, particularly with these last two stories as he joins them together? Well, I think a, a major theme throughout these stories is this. When, when you see Jesus for who he really is, you you must respond in faith. Mark gives us different stories, different scenes, and, and yet over and over again, what he's, what he's showing us is, look, see Jesus, respond in faith. See Jesus, respond in faith. And particularly in these latter two stories, let me just make, therefore, several observations for you about faith. First, I want you to see that faith is active dependence on Jesus. Particularly with these last two stories, the woman that's healed and Jairus' daughter, in, in showing us how these stories are connected and in very intentionally connecting them, Jairus is, I mean, Mark is bringing together two people that in a first century Jewish context could not have been more different. I mean, culturally, socially, you, you just couldn't be more different than this woman and the synagogue leader. First of all, right, there's different gender, which included very different status in the ancient world. She's a woman. He's a man. Furthermore, there is the contrast between the fact that, that she, would be, she would be isolated because she was ceremonially unclean. There was a social stigma that went with her, isolation, shame. 
He was a synagogue ruler. He was esteemed, admired, valued within his community. Otherwise, he would not have been given this position. So in terms of social status, you really can't get any different in this cultural context than these two. And you see that, among other things, in the way they approach Jesus, right? Notice, how does, she, how does she come to Jesus? She comes from behind, right? She, she doesn't feel, she doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't feel worthy to address him. If, if I can just sneak up from behind and touch him. He comes from the front. He's used to addressing people. He's, I mean, people make way when he comes through because he's admired and valued within his community. That's just the way he operates. So when it comes to these two individuals, Mark couldn't, couldn't give us examples that were more different than the social standing, the social background of, of these two people. Yet in showing us how these stories are tied, I think Mark is showing us what both of these people have in common. And what they have in common is, is simply this. They, they both have a need they can't solve on their own. And that, that is the starting point of faith, right? Remember the beginning of the book as we are introduced to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus proclaims that, right, the time is drawn near. That is the, the kingdom of God, God's plan of restoration and renewal is now underway and it has come through me. And if you would understand what is taking place, you will respond accordingly. And the way you are to respond is this. You are to repent. You are to turn and believe. And as we think about repentance, right, it's, it's turning from our sin, acknowledging our brokenness, our imperfection. But also in, in repenting from our sin, we, we are turning from our self-sufficiency. We are turning from the assumption that we can make life work simply on our own. And, and that's where faith begins. And in their own way, even though they're very different, they have this reality. Life no longer works for them on their own. They can't solve it. And so they come in faith, in active dependence on Jesus. And I think in showing us how these two stories go together, Mark is saying, look, it doesn't matter your circumstances, your background, your social standing. When you understand who Jesus is, you need to respond in faith. Maybe when you look at these people, you, you can identify more with her. Maybe you look at your life and at times it feels like you've been thwarted by others as in some sense she was thwarted by those who treated her. Maybe for ongoing reasons, at times you have felt isolated in your family or at work or in other parts of your life. Maybe you've even felt like an outcast. Maybe it's felt like life works for other people, but it doesn't work for you. On the other hand, maybe you really identify more with, with Jairus. Your life has gone well. It's been filled with opportunities. You're respected and admired in what you do by those around you. It seems like things are clicking into place, but Mark is saying it doesn't matter. 
when you understand who Jesus is, you will respond in faith. Don't fool yourself. Regardless of your background, this is the step you need to take. And so in these stories, we see that that faith is, is active dependence on God. Furthermore, I think we see this. We see that Jesus celebrates faith even though it is frail. Jesus celebrates faith even though it is frail. This, this woman, right, she comes in faith. That's why she's there. She, she knows that Jesus can heal her. But there's a real sense in which she really doesn't fully trust Jesus. You see, what, what she wants, right, is a drive-by healing, Right? That's what she wants. I just want to touch him and leave. And what that shows us is I, I don't, I, she, had, she had faith in Jesus' power, but not faith in his goodness. She had faith that he could heal her, but he, she didn't really have faith that, that he was for her. And so when, you know, when he heals her, she starts to walk away because that's what she wanted. I just want to touch him and be gone. And she's pressing her way out into the crowd. And Jesus says, okay, who touched me? And, of course, that doesn't make sense to the disciples. It doesn't make sense to all the people around him because they're pressing in. But she hears it, and she knows he's talking about me. And so she stops, and she turns. And I can only imagine that as she turned, people realize something's going on. So, the, you know, the water spread, and all of a sudden she's just standing there in front of Jesus, and the crowd is backed off. And Mark says she's standing there. She falls at his feet in fear and trembling. Why? He's just healed her. I think she's, she's, she's trembling. She's in fear because everything in her background has told her you're not worthy of this. You're unclean. You're an outcast. Her experiences with those in authority most likely had not been good up to this point. And so she, she trusted Jesus' power but not his goodness for her. And it's in that moment he looks at her and uh, just grab hold of this language, daughter. What is that? It's a term of family, right? It's a term of relationship. It's a term of connection. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now notice he doesn't rebuke her. He restores her. Even though her faith, right, it's, it's incomplete at this point, and yet he says, daughter, Welcome home. Your faith has healed you. And I think an important lesson we see in this text is that, right, the the important thing is not the, the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. And so even though her... Her faith has miles to grow. Jesus celebrates it. And we need to hear that truth that Jesus celebrates faith even and though it is thrill. Yet there's a corollary to this that, that we need to understand as well. And that is this. At the same time, our faith needs to grow. And I think we need to hear these principles together, right? We need to hear that Jesus celebrates our, our faith and even when it's frail, so that we're not burdened by a sense of perfectionism. But we also need to hear this. At the same time, our faith needs to grow so that we don't become idle or complacent. It's interesting when you look at these stories in a real sense, these people, they come to Jesus. But Jesus asks more of them than they really expect, doesn't he? Right, this woman, she comes to Jesus. She just wants to touch him and leave. She, she just wants something from him. 
But he doesn't allow her to do that, right? He, he, he calls her back. He calls her forward. Then, then you have Jairus. I mean, he comes, and I mean, it's, it's a bold move on his part. I mean, he's a synagogue ruler. Already people in his sphere of influence are starting to have questions about Jesus and concerns about Jesus, yet he's willing to come and... And yet, when he comes, things don't go according to plan. He came wanting his daughter to be healed. He didn't come with the expectation that Jesus would be delayed. He didn't come with the expectation that it might appear that Jesus doesn't care at all, that he's just willing to be slowed down by other things. He didn't come with the expectation that things would actually get worse while he was with Jesus. And so there's this moment, right? When the bottom falls out and he gets the word, his daughter's tied, that Jesus, it's like, look, okay, Jairus, two eyes here. Don't fear. Just believe. And, it, and it's almost like, it's almost like Jesus looks at him and says, okay, I know you've already taken a step of faith in coming here. But I also know things have just gotten really much, complica- much more complicated for you. And this isn't what you bargained for. But, but right now. This is time for another step of faith. It's time for your faith to go deeper. So don't be immobilized by fear. Just believe. And, of course, the interesting thing in both of the cases of these stories, they they come and, and Jesus asks more than they expected, but they also experience far more than they anticipated. She came just looking for something, and she ended up with someone, right? She ended up with someone who calls her out and someone who then restores her and begins to transform her and welcome her home. He comes simply looking for someone to heal his daughter, looking for a healing, and he experiences a resurrection. So we see Jesus celebrates our faith even when it's frail, yet at the same time our faith needs to grow. And the fact that our faith needs to grow leads to one more observation, and that is this. For our faith to grow, it must confront our fears. For our faith to grow, it must confront our fears. Interestingly, right, as you you read through these scenes, they're very different, but a recurrent theme in these scenes is the element of fear. The disciples are in the boat. They're scared. Jesus says, why are you afraid? A man is restored in the Decapolis, and the people see what Jesus can do, and they're they're terrified. A woman is healed. Jesus calls her forward, and she comes forward in fear and trembling. Jairus is looking for help with his daughter. It gets complicated, and Jesus says, don't fear. Fear is a theme throughout this section of the book, and in some ways I think it's, it's somewhat of a theme in, in Mark's gospel. I mean, when we get to the book, or uh, when we get to the Easter Sunday, we'll see that the best evidence suggests that the, Mark's gospel actually ends at verse 8 of chapter 16, so it, I think the original ending of the book is an ending where we see the eyewitnesses have encountered the empty tomb of Christ, and they're afraid. And we'll see why Mark chooses to end his gospel that way. I think Mark highlights the theme of fear because he wants us to see that for our faith to grow, it must confront our fears. Maybe 
you're someone who's really, you know, I'm not quite sure about Christianity or do you really take this seriously? And there's a sense in which for you following Christ is it's, you're kind of like the, the crowds in that, in that Decapolis region. You, as you see Jesus for who he is, there's this fear that he threatens the status quo. Maybe you're like the disciples in the boat and circumstances or situations you're facing now have become more complicated. They seem overwhelming. Things aren't going, going, going according to plan for you, and, and so there's fear. Maybe you're like that woman in the crowd, and for you, there's, there's a certain sense in which you, you know some next steps that you need to take in your life in certain relationships in your job, in engaging family. You know kind of what the path of obedience needs to look like, and yet there's, there's fear that Jesus is kind of calling you out into a scary place if you take that seriously. Maybe you are in a situation where even though you've tried to be faithful, it seems things have only gotten worse and it feels like you're standing right there beside the synagogue ruler Jairus. And the bottom has fallen out. And the truth is Jesus is saying to you, don't fear. Just believe. Along those lines, I love this quote by author Tim Keller who has uh, said these words when it comes to this issue of faith. Life-giving faith grows beautiful and pure in the same place that gold grows beautiful and pure in the furnace. And maybe that's kind of where you find yourself right now. You know, I think about that. And I, I think about kind of some experiences in, in, in our marriage and our life uh, 20 years ago. Some of you have heard me describe this, that as I was finishing my education, we were, we were looking for kind of next steps, where would we serve in ministry, and, and I thought the process would go quickly. It turns out it didn't, and we were talking to one church, and we had kind of a lengthy conversation with this church over several months. That fell through, and then, then we were talking with three different churches, and my prayer became, okay, God, uh, just, just make this clear. Let one path really open up and just shut the door on the other two, and that's exactly what happened. But the problem was this. In my mind, I had ranked the three opportunities, and the path that opened up was door number three. And I was like, you know, Fargo, North Dakota. And there was, you know, there was some frustration there. That was hard. I mean, Rose and I candidly joked over the next few weeks about what we called the Fargo response. We would talk to friends, people who knew us, and we would say, hey, we finally figured out where we're going. Where are you going? Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo! And that's how people would respond, always the same inflection. Fargo! Yeah, Fargo. And I remember, you know, kind of having to wrestle with that, and it was, there was just some, de- I mean, there, to be honest with you, I hate to admit it, but there was just some kind of some internal pride and arrogance that, you know, it's kind of like, I did not go get a PhD from the University of Cambridge in order to move to Fargo, North Dakota, right? But, you know, as I look back, what I didn't fully appreciate was, in reality, I I found myself 
right next to the synagogue ruler. Things that they have not gone according to plan. And even sometimes in trying to be faithful, it feels like it's only getting worse. And, okay, God, where are you in this? And, it, you know, there's fear and there's some uncertainty. And it's, it's like the words we need to hear are, are the same words from this text. Don't fear. Two eyes right here. Don't fear. Just believe. And, of course, one of the struggles of being right here is you don't, you don't fully see what God is doing or how God is at work. And sometimes we may not fully ever truly appreciate that on this side of heaven, of what God is doing. And, and as I stood there, I didn't fully know what God would do over the next nine years in our lives and the relationships and opportunities that would come with that experience, how it would be significant for our family. I didn't see any of that. And see, when, when, when you find yourself here, the voice you have to listen for is the voice of Jesus saying simply to you, Don't fear. Just believe. And see, Mark, Mark tells us these different stories because he wants us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to see the authority, the power, the reality that he is bringing this rescue plan into place. And he wants you to understand that if you truly see him for who he is, you respond in faith. You respond in faith. And particularly if you find yourself here, and it feels like even your best steps have led to a place that is only more complicated. We're invited to hear the words of Jesus. Don't fear. Just believe. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in different ways, we, we follow the story of not only Jesus, but the people around him and people who are having to come to grips with the unexpected. And some of us are in scenes like that right now. Father, and I pray for some of us that, man, if, if we are finding ourselves in places where it feels like we've been abandoned or we're confused or the fear is overwhelming, I pray we would see ourselves just standing right next to this synagogue ruler, and I pray that in, in a profound way, even now, your spirit would impress on our hearts this simple truth. Don't fear, just believe. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.